0: Good morning, how's everybody doing? Enjoying your summer? It's been really nice, hasn't it? Okay, Ephesians 6 is where we are today, and we've got a lot to cover, so I'm going to dive right into it. And uh, while you're turning there, just want to remind us that the first three chapters of this book are all about what God does in us through Jesus and His Word and His Gospel. And his Holy Spirit. And how all of that changes a person from the inside out. The change is profound. And that's why the last time I was here, I asked you, is God changing you? Because that's what Christ and his gospel and his word and his spirit do. They change a person from the inside out. And it affects every aspect of life. God changing me. Changes my marriage as we looked at last week with Neil. God changing me changes me and my relationship with my family and how I conduct myself in the workplace. So let's uh, stand for the reading of God's word. That's what we're going to look at this morning Ephesians 6 1 through 9. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Boy, that brings back memories. I heard that every Sunday morning. I did. Sometimes I wonder if we should be reading the Ten Commandments every day. Every Sunday, I mean. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Jesus, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one For whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is God's word. You can be seated. Okay. I think you can see with verse 1, where Paul addresses children, and then verse 4, where he addresses fathers, that there Paul is addressing the family, and how God changing me changes me in my relationship to my family. Then verse 5, he addresses slaves, and then verse 9, he addresses the masters, and that will, would really be the equivalent of the workplace, which I will show you in just a moment. I want to start with that second piece, the slave and the master piece. And I think we need to begin with, first of all, just a word about slavery. Because you read this and you're like, wait a second, Paul, almost sounds like he's endorsing slavery. Let me say this, slavery then was much different than the slavery that you and I are sadly familiar with. Because I think when you and I think about slavery, we think about that awful reality of what occurred in our country in the 18th and 19th century. That violent, oppressive kind of slavery, which was race based, it was forced upon free, innocent people, where a person was made to be a slave their entire life, and then their children were slaves, and their children were slaves. And this kind of slavery is nowhere near the kind of slavery that existed when Paul is writing this letter. Because in Paul's time, a person actually became a slave because they chose slavery. And they would do it for reasons of security, to get bailed out of a desperate situation. And also a slave in that time, they got to choose their lord. And oftentimes, they would negotiate the conditions. And so really, it was much like a boss-employer kind of arrangement. Now, it wasn't great, but it wasn't the horrible thing that you and I think about. Also, let me add this. Yes, it was Christians who were guilty of the slavery of the 18th and 19th century. One of the biggest black eyes on on Christianity that there is. I also want you to know, it was Christians who were changed from the inside out by the gospel of Jesus Christ that eradicated it. People like William Wilberforce, right Randy? Who just gave their whole lives to this awful reality. Why? Because they were so good? No, because they were changed by the gospel. And that's why I get excited when I see us pushing into these kind of things in our day. Because that's what Christians do. Okay, so basically a slave in that day was someone who was under authority. And I'll raise my hand to that. I'm under authority. Are you under authority? I'm under an elder board. Most of us here have have bosses. Any of us who have jobs, um, almost all of us in this room right now in some way are under authority. So here's my question. How is a Christian to think about their jobs? Think about it. Some of us spend 40, 50, 60, 70, even more hours a week in our jobs. Almost half our life is spent in the workplace. How are we to think about our work? How are we to walk out Jesus and walk like Jesus in this important area of life? Let me ask you this question Why do you work? Why do you get up in the morning? What motivates you in your job? Are you motivated? Are fired up? This past week, I read this book that someone gave to me. It's, uh, and I don't normally do this. You know this. I'm not the guy that just endorses books. And I, I don't know if I'm really endorsing this book. But I, it really stirred some things in my heart. It's, it, it's called Lead for God's Sakes. And it's a parable of a modern-day coach and a CEO. And in this parable... The author says there are two things that motivate people in the public square. The first thing is money. Because money today is our definition of winning. It's our definition of success. it's, It's about getting more. It's about having more. It's about moving up the ladder. It's about becoming bigger and better. That's one thing that motivates people. The second thing that he says that motivates people in the public square or in their job is, he used the word hatchet. It's this fear of not meeting expectations, of, of being punished, of not making the grade, of failure, of not being successful, of being let go. And he says, this is what drives boss and employees, it's money in the hatchet. It's reward and punishment. And he went on to kind of just show how every boss kind of wields these things. In one hand, he he wields the reward, the money, the raise, the bonus. It's what we call the golden handcuffs. In the other hand, he wields the punishment, the stick. He threatens. I mean, it's right there in verse 9. That's what masters do. They demote, they fire. And see, I was thinking about this, and I think our whole system today, not just the workplace, but our whole culture, our politics, our, our churches, our schools, our homes are all driven by reward and punishment. Let me ask you this, what motivates you? you see what the motivation of money produces? Greed. Selfishness. Loneliness. Because I'm competing against you and you're competing against me. And it's all about who's going to get more and be better and go to the top. And ultimately, despair. Midlife crisis. Because enough is never enough. And you also see what the motivator of punishment produces. Produces fear, produces worry, produces anxiety, produces anger, produces bitterness. And I just want to say this right at the outset. We were not made for this. We weren't. We weren't made to spend our whole lives trying to get more, become more, possess more, have more, make it to the top, for what? For what? You and I are made for God. We are made to know him, we are made to love him, and we are made to serve him. In fact, that's what Paul is getting at in verse seven when he says, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. See, this is what we are made for, to serve the Lord with all our heart. And see, what I think we need to recapture in the church is a theology of work, a theology of vocation. Because vocation is this idea of calling, that I do what I do not because of fear or greed, but I do what I do because I've been called to it. How many of you feel called today? How many of you feel absolutely called to what you're doing? And see, we read this phrase in verse 7 serving the Lord, and, and, and what does that mean? Because I think so many of us just think that it means, well, to serve the Lord means I become a pastor, or I become a missionary, or I do something spiritual. Let me just say a few things about that. First, just because one is a pastor doesn't mean they're serving the Lord. Pastors can be the most greedy and most intent on moving up in the world than anyone else. And I'll say this too, our world doesn't need more pastors. If anything, becoming a pastor in the kingdom of God is a demotion. And I mean that. Because when you and I become pastors, it pulls us off the front lines and it cloisters us from the world. See, what our world needs is we need more school teachers and businessmen and janitors and doctors and lawyers and truck drivers who serve God with everything they have. That's all we need. I love the prayer pit. I love it. You know that. You can see the smile on my face. This morning, I'm smiling. I wish we'd get some businessmen in here. I wish we'd get some school teachers in here. I wish we'd get some janitors in here. You know, every, every, every day almost that I'm at work, I'm humbled by Bill Boynton. I'll be working away, and all of a sudden that guy will come into my office and take my trash with a smile on his face, engage me, talk to me. And I think to myself, you know what? There is no one right now in this office who's more like Jesus than Bill Boynton. And see, I could even argue that the most spiritual thing that occurs in this room on Sunday mornings are those of you who help tear down and set up. It's so like Jesus. And see, what the Lord's calling is It's simply the place he's placed you right now. It's not where you want to be or you wish you could be or you think you should be. Because I think one of the most destructive myths today that that, that people are, are buying into is that you and I need to pursue whatever it is that we're passionate about or whatever it is that we're gifted in. And that anything else is beneath us. Was anything beneath Jesus? I mean, Jesus came to this world. He took the lowest place. He gave up all his power and became powerless. He gave up his riches and became poor. He gave up his status and became a slave. He turned the whole world's system upside down. He said, the first shall be last, the humble will be exalted, the least will become the greatest, the little guy will become the big guy, the poor shall become rich, and the meek will inherit the earth. Absolutely nothing ought to be beneath a Christian. In fact, I could argue that our call is to take on a walk that looks a lot like Jesus and to walk his path. Because when we go that path, it's the path not up. It's the path that goes down. And it leads us to the lowest places. And it leads us to the least of these in the world. It calls us to become small. And it calls us to give everything up. Is that you? Does that describe you? Does that describe the path that you're walking today? He called Joseph to be a slave. He called Moses to live 40 years in a desert. He called David to shepherd sheep. And these men, they didn't just complain to God and say, God, why do you have me here? They embraced it with all their heart. God's calling is the place He's placed you in right now. Embrace it. Embrace it. I love what Colossians 3.23, how this says it, because Paul is picking up the same theme and addressing the same thing, but here he says, whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if you are working for the Lord, not man. Now notice what this text does not say. It does not say as long as you're doing something that you're passionate about and something you're gifted in, then do it with all your heart. Now it says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. In other words, wherever God's placed you, be passionate about it. Because here's the deal, and this is what this text is teaching us God is our boss, it's not your school board. It's not your employer. We work as pastors. We work as teachers. We work as truck drivers, janitors, doctors, lawyers, businessmen. But we do it for him. you know this? Is that at the forefront of your mind every moment of every day? I work for him. Because when you do... He will free you up from this world system, from all its values, from all the voices that determine what you are and what success is, and it will free you from all these things that will never ultimately motivate you. You'll hate your job. You'll hate it. Unless you know who you work for. And see, with Christ, this is how it is with him. It doesn't matter if you're the CEO or if you are the janitor because your calling at the end of the day is simply your place to love him with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the most meaningful thing, the most satisfying thing your heart will ever do. In fact, someone asked Jesus, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he gave, he gave the obvious answer when he said, well, it's Shema, it's love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. But then he did something shocking. He said, and also, a second, is right on par with it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He equated loving our neighbor with loving God. And here's the deal. Every moment of every day, you are called to a place where you have an opportunity to love God and to love people. so who are you? What are you doing here? You know today that you were made for God, that the ache, the ache that exists in your heart, and trust me, there is an ache there. There's an ache in my heart. It's not for anything this world has to offer. It's not for what the world says this is successful. It's not for money. It's not to move up the ladder. The ache in your heart is for him. And to love people. See, every day then becomes just another opportunity for, for you and I to store up heavenly treasure. Every day is just another opportunity for, for, for you and I to love people. Every day is just another opportunity for us to become small and to, to lay our lives down for someone else. So when I coach, it's not about wins. Are you kidding? I mean, I got to tell myself this all the time because that's where my heart so quickly goes. But you know what? It's, it's all about those kids. It's about loving them and teaching them how to love each other in fact I loved it this week I stepped into it Thursday night went to the football field because the football camp was going on and it was just you have no idea what it does for me um, seeing these parents and seeing the kids and hey coach Rod hey coach Rod and, um, but the thing that was a highlight for me was a parent came up to me tears in his eyes hand-wrapped. I don't want to draw any conclusions, but he said, can you help me? I said, why? He said, my marriage is completely in the rocks. I said, I'd love to. It has nothing to do with me being a pastor. That has nothing to do even with coaching other than the fact that when we put ourselves in these places, whatever those places are, and we love him with everything we we have, and we love people, God is going to give us opportunities. So it's not just about crunching numbers. It's about the person in the cubicle next to you. Do they know Jesus? And if you run your own company, it's not just about the bottom line, and are you making more money, and, 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 and all of that, but Is it an opportunity to hire the unemployed or is it an opportunity to make that workplace a place where Christ is on the throne and exalted? See, this is the profound change that gets worked into our lives that must get worked into the workplace. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, aim for heaven. Just keep aiming there and you get earth thrown in. But you aim for earth and you get neither. Okay. Workplace. Let's switch gears here. Now let's look at how Christ changing me also changes my family. Verse 1. Children. Obey your parents, and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. I think what's going on here, and I want to just make this clarification, I don't have a, a lot of time to spell all this out, but Paul uses two words here. First of all, he uses uh, the word obey, and then he uses the word honor, which is the sixth commandment of the ten. And I think the, the reason for these two words is this. When we are young and under our parents' authority, the call of God is for us as children to obey our parents. But then as we grow up and we leave our, our family of origin and become full-fledged adults... The call no longer is to obey them, but to honor them. I want to say a word right now to all the children and to all the young people right now. Our culture today is increasingly becoming anti-authority. Whether it be parent, whether it be teacher, whether it be coach, whether it be pastor, the spirit of our day is that it's a cool thing to buck the system. It's the end thing. Be true yourself. Don't be true to your coach or to your parent or to your teacher. I wanna say this to you, all the young people and children in the room. First, I want you to know that I know that every parent, starting with me, is broken. And imperfect. We are. We're going to say things that are crazy. We're going to respond to situations. In ways that sometimes aren't right. But I want to ask you a question. Do you have any desire. In your heart. To honor Christ. To honor him with your life. Because here's the deal. If you want to honor Christ, you will honor your parents. And if you want to obey Christ, you will obey your parents. Period. In fact, the mark of maturity is to put oneself under authority. Just like the mark of immaturity is to continually buck against authority and I've had to learn this the hard way at so many stages of my life because trust me authority and I <laughs> didn't always go together that well um, but the quickest way to ruin your life is to go against authority and that starts with your parents now all of us this morning I'm going to state the obvious our our children we all, we're, we're, we're all children. And if you are looking this morning for a way to be shockingly and attractively different from our culture, honor your parents. Honor them. Exalt them. Be good to them. Be gracious to them. Love them. And I'll say this, one of the best ways to honor your parents and maybe one of the most difficult ways for all of us to honor our parents is to forgive them. And that might be the most profound thing that's said all morning. Because I was a 20-something pastor for for four years, and, and one of the things I realized... A lot of these 20-somethings became (laughs) 30-somethings, and the group sometimes even had 40-somethings, and they were all single. And I started to ask myself this question, why are a lot of these 20, 30, 40-somethings not getting married? Why are they struggling? Why, why, Why are they kind of just, the gears aren't meshing? And it dawned on me, I started to realize more and more and more, most of the reason was due to these 20, 30, 40 somethings. They were angry at their parents. They were ticked. And a lot of times I'd peel away the layers and and, and the place where it had to go was this place. They had to get to a point where they could just acknowledge that their parents were incapable of giving to them and loving them the way that their heart needed to be loved. And they had to forgive them for that. And some of you need to do that today. And in doing that, it's like, man. It's hard to accept that fact. That your parents just weren't what they're supposed to be. But I'll tell you something. There's a reason behind why they were the way they were. And the only thing that will break that and snap that thing is you getting the power in your life to say, Mom and Dad, I forgive you. My heart wanted this. You were capable of giving me this. And all that anger, all that bitterness... And now just, I let it go. Verse 4. We've got to keep moving here. Clock. Thing's moving way too fast. Verse 4. Fathers. Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Why fathers? And not mothers? Mothers? Or or why not fathers and mothers or parents? Why is this fathers? I have two reasons. First reason is mothers typically aren't the problem. Right? (laughs) Typically is the key word there. Typically mothers aren't the problem, fathers are I mean, all we have to do is just look at our society and these studies done by psychologists and sociologists are now starting to say that the reason why there's so much depression and suicide and school, dropouts and drugs and addictions within our young people is because of absentee fathers. We know this. We know that fathers typically aren't in the game when it comes to the family, Second reason, though, and this is a biblical reason, is because fathers have been given a special responsibility in the home. And what is that responsibility? Well, good. I hope we learned something today. Every dad ought to be listening to me. Every man who intends on being a dad needs to listen to this. God gave Father's the special responsibility of being a priest in their home. This goes all the way back to Eden. God didn't give his word to Eve. God gave his word to Adam. He Gave his word to Adam about the forbidden tree, about the forbidden fruit. It was Adam's responsibility to know God's word, to teach Eve and his family God's word, to sanctify his home with God's word, to wash his family, his wife, his kids with that word so they could live it. This is why when Eve ate the fruit, God didn't say, Eve, where are you? God came looking for the man, Adam, where are you? Because what God is doing is he's holding Adam responsible for that event because the man is the priest of the home. This is why in Deuteronomy 5, verse 9, it says, God says, I'm a jealous God and I'm punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. I hate to do this to Neil's NIV here, but it doesn't read parents. It reads, God punishes the children for the sin of the fathers the third and the fourth generation because ultimately sin in the home is the responsibility of the priest of that home. What's a priest? A priest is simply someone who acts as God's representative. You look at the Bible and you see that the priest's job is to show the world what God is like. He puts God on display. If the world wants to know what God is like, they simply look to the priest. And so dads, it's your responsibility in your home to put him on display. So that when your kids are wondering what's God like, they can just look at you. And so a priest's job is, is to look at the people and to consider a holy God and to see this huge gap and to stand in that gap and to, to wash and to make a sinful people presentable to a holy God. It's a priest's job. That's why, in talking about marriage, Paul says... He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, to sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word. That's a priestly function. That's what Christ does for his bride. That's what husbands are to do for their brides and what fathers are to do for their homes. In fact, in verse uh, 25 of chapter 5, just go there and look at this. It says, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but instead they feed and they care for their body. The word for feed and care in Greek is the exact same word that is in verse 4 where it says, where we translate that, bring them up. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up could be translated nourish. It means to raise up, to make mature. That's a priestly function. I want to talk to all the dads right now. It's our job as fathers to sanctify our home. In other words, the spiritual maturity, the spiritual health of our home, it's on us. Men, give me an amen to that. And Paul's exhortation to men is do not exasperate your children. That word exasperate there in verse 4 means infuriate or embitter. Do not infuriate them. Do not embitter them. Now listen, this doesn't mean that you're never going to make your children angry. I mean, the moment we start doing our job, at least in my home, (laughs) starting when they're young, lots of anger, lots of outbursts, I wish I could say they grow out of this, but so far I haven't seen it. But maybe some of you will tell me it, it changes. See, Paul is not talking about the event of anger. He's talking about producing children that are angry and that are embittered. And see, Paul is saying, too, I think, that there are two ways to make a kid angry. He says, do not exasperate them. Do not infuriate them. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. He says, the way that you bring up a child, the way that you nourish them, the way that you raise them up so one day they're full-functioning adults, they're no longer dependent on you, but they can leave you and go into the world as an extension of you. He gives us two things. He says, train them and instruct them. To train them means to discipline them. Because children absolutely need rules and boundaries. And I'll show you right now a Christian's view towards rules. We put the line in the sand right here. Can I stand on this, Greg? Okay. (laughs) This is how we are. We we just get as close to the line as we can. Is this okay, Greg, or not? Good. <laughs> I'm I'm stopping right here. <laughs> this is how we treat it. Oh, and then we 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 get so close to it sometimes we fall over it. Oh, that's alright, I'm s- saved by grace. <laughs> and we just we live our life here. This is where our teenagers live their lives when it comes to sexual purity. Get as close to the line as they can get. Oops, I fell over. I'm saved by grace. And we are. You know how an observant Jew treats the rules and the law? If this is the line. I'm not saying we become Jewish. And I'm not even saying that's completely right. But God gave us rules, laws, Torah, which means instruction. In this chaotic, dark world, I need instruction. Your Torah is a light to my path. And I'll say this, this this instruction, these rules, um, it's more than just shaping one's behavior. It's shaping our kids' appetites. It's it's curbing their passions. It's redirecting their, their, their precious appetites to real food. Because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. Are you shaping their appetite? Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul longs for you. My body thirsts for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Are you shaping that appetite in them? Are you growing it? Are you nurturing it? It's also shaping their expectations. Parents, I want you to hear this. Because I think so many parents today think it's their job to meet their kids' expectations. It's not your job to meet your kids' expectations. It's your job to shape their expectations. And see, this is the one that scares me the most because... We don't just shape our kids' expectations with our words, but we shape their expectations with our very lives. We're shaping our kids' expectations by the homes we live in, the neighborhoods we, we dwell, the cars we drive, the vacations we go on, the kind, of meat, the kind of food we eat. And that becomes what's normal for them. It's normal. Expect it Well, you don't expect it. You know, Tom Brokaw was right about the greatest generation, at least in my mind. He said the World War II generation was the greatest generation. It was a year ago where I took my boys to uh, their great-uncle, Dyke Nsakoma, who a couple months ago passed away, but he fought in World War II. He started D-Day plus 14, I think, and he took a Sherman tank all the way from Normandy to Berlin. And as he got older, he started sharing more and more about his war experiences and things like that. So we were there, and I finally just looked at Dyke and I said, Dyke, this guy discipled me, he, he poured Jesus into me. I said, Dyke, you're such a great man. He just put his head down. He said, we just did what we were told to do. And so there is this sense of training, that's one word. The second word is the word instruction. Instruction here is wise counsel. It's not just showing our kids the what, but it's explaining the why behind the what. And familiarize yourself with Deuteronomy 6. You have Shema there, and then after that it says in verse 6, it says, these commands that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on the foreheads of, and, and write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Teach it. Instruct them. But I love this. In verse 20 it says, And in the future when your son asks you, What is the meaning of this, these stipulations, decrees, and, and laws that the Lord has commanded to you? Why? Why, Dad? I get that question all the time. Why, Dad? Next verse. Tell them. Tell them we are slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Tell them the story. Tell them. And see, this instruction piece, what it requires is Time. It takes time to explain. It takes time to tell them why. It demands a relationship with them. And see, every parent needs to balance these two things, this training and this instruction, this truth and love, this rules and relationship. Because here's the deal. If you only discipline, where it's all about the rules, with no relationship, what you're going to do is you're going to make your kid angry. You're going to embitter them. Because our kids long to have a relationship with us. They want to be with us. They want us to spend time with us. They want to know that they are more important than anything, especially our work. There's a second way to make a kid angry it's instruction without training. It's relationship with no rules. It's it's parents who think the best thing they can do for their kids is to be their buddy. And see, so many parents today, I see going this route today. And see, if you're wondering why so many kids today are angry and embittered and checked out and full of despair, it's because parents have Failed to provide their children discipline and structure and boundaries and expectations. Because a youth, a child, they thrive in structure. Yeah, they're gonna buck against it. But they still need to know that there's, there's a boundary here because the boundary makes them feel secure. And so in the moment, and this is where it's been in my family, I'm telling you, you put that boundary up sometimes, and it gets pretty loud in the Vinsalcama household. But that's the short term. The long term is that they're secure. In fact, studies are now showing that even parents who have given a poor or erroneous instruction, a moral framework, are not frustrating or embittering their children like parents who give no moral framework, or boundaries. See, the anger in our youth today, I think, has everything to do with the fact that no one has told them what to do and has demanded it of them and has expected it of them and that there are consequences when they don't do it. Because what's going to happen, your kid's just going to then go out into the real world And I'll tell you what, the real world doesn't care one bit about what they want. And they're going to feel entitled to this. Because in their home, mom and dad always gave me what I wanted. And the real world just doesn't work that way. So you see what Paul's saying? Truth without love, love without truth will both produce an angry child. We need to balance these things. This is what I used to tell parents all the time when I was a youth pastor. We don't have the luxury today to be good parents. We need to be great parents. We need to ballpark it in both truth and love. And I'll end with this. Because most parents right now are probably discouraged. Because for me, I'll just be really frank here. Parenting has been one of the most humbling things I've ever done. Every parent here fails All families here today are dysfunctional in some way. My parents, as good as they were, they put scars in my life, and I know I am in some ways putting scars in my kids' life. And you know what this does for me? It just drives me to Jesus, it drives me to the gospel. Because I in no way could do this without him. I mean, I could so quickly lose heart. I could so quickly feel like an utter failure. And I know how quickly I can just fall into being a dysfunctional, dysfunctional parent. I mean, sometimes I, I, I underdiscipline my kids. And I know why I underdiscipline them. Because I want them to like me. I, wa- I want to be their buddy. I want them to approve of me. Sometimes I overdiscipline them. Even out of anger. Why? I don't want them to fail. I want them to look good. Because when they look good, I look good. I mean, when our sons are beautiful, we feel beautiful. And when our daughters look impressive, we somehow feel impressive. It's why so many parents live their lives to their kids. It's why so many of you keep your kids dependent on you because they meet your needs. They they, they massage and assuage something that's deeply broken inside of you. But see, what the gospel does is it, it completely sets me And I'll take it back to just one clause that in my mind sums up the gospel. It's in Ephesians 5 verse 2 where it says as dearly loved children. That's what we are. The gospel screams at us that we have a father and that we're his child. About two years ago I got a phone call from my dad and we were talking, and he was really disappointed in me on something I had done, maybe even something I had said, and we were going back and forth, and I was defending, and I just hate these situations. We've all been there, right? I'm going to wrap this up right now, but he, um, he just broke through and just said, hey, Rod, do you know how much I? Do you know how proud I am of you? Do you know that every day you bring such joy to my life? He just kept going on and on. I had tears just dripping off my cheeks. He didn't know I just said, Thanks, Dad. Do you know this kind of love? We've been made for family love. The people who know us the best, love us the most. And we have a father, a perfect father. And if you want to know what he's like, Jesus came to the world to show us the Father, to his heart, his face. He says, You seen me, you've seen him. And he taught us about the Father. He said, this is the kind of father, even in your worst failures, he will run to you, he will embrace you, wrap his arms around you, kiss you. Do you know him? Because I love my kids, but I don't need my kids to make me feel beautiful. My father makes me feel beautiful. And I want my kids to know Christ. I desperately want them to know Christ. I want them to be good and I want them to live good lives, but I don't expect them to be perfect because I'm not perfect. I'm not even good. See, what the gospel does is it frees me to be imperfect and for them to be imperfect and for us as a family to talk about our failures and our imperfections and the places where we've blown it because we know that we have a Father in heaven who unconditionally loves us and accepts us. And see, the gospel frees me to just enjoy my kids and their lives without them becoming my life because Christ is my life. And I don't live for them and I don't live for their success. I live for my Father. We can't do this without Him and knowing who we are in Him as dearly loved children. Let's pray. thank you for your word thank you that you give us so much more than instruction but our father who gives us this instruction because he so loves his children let this fall in our hearts and let your love O oh father set us free in Jesus name